Hello, I'm Philip Sales. In this video, I'll be interviewing Murray Hunt, who's the legal advisor to Parliament's Joint Committee on Human Rights. We'll be talking about the role of the Joint Committee on Human Rights in the legislative process. Murray, what is scrutiny of a bill by a parliamentary committee? Scrutiny of a bill by a parliamentary committee is an opportunity for parliamentarians to give detailed attention, um, line by line, to um, the detail of a bill. Um, and to hear evidence about the controversial aspects of that bill, um, give civil society organisations an opportunity to make representations to parliamentarians about the bill, and generally to test the government's um, strength of the government's case uh, in putting such a bill before Parliament. And what is the purpose of scrutiny of bills by the Joint Committee on Human Rights? Scrutiny by the Joint Committee on Human Rights has a more specific purpose. It, its purpose is, is scrutiny for compatibility with human rights specifically. Um, so it will look at a bill and measure it against various legal standards um, rooted in international human rights sources. Um, and, and it will test the government's reasons for um, if it's a bill which interferes with human rights, why that's a justified interference um, and so on. Now, the courts also <coughs> scrutinise Acts of Parliament for compatibility with human rights under the Human Rights Act. How does scrutiny by the Joint Committee on Human Rights differ from that? Yes, scrutiny by the Human Rights Committee is a little more freewheeling um, than courts can be um, when they're scrutinising uh, legislation's compatibility for human rights. Um, it's, it's less constrained by concerns about justiciability of the issue before the court. Um, and much more concerned um, with uh, the general question of uh, whether the bill itself is justified and whether the particular interference is justified. Um, and it doesn't operate under the same constraints in terms of the evidence that it may hear um, when it's trying to reach its own view about whether the bill is compatible with human rights. So it's generally speaking a much more um, unconstrained um, exercise in, in scrutiny. What resources does the Joint Committee have? Um, it has uh, myself as the legal advisor, um, two other lawyers as well, so three lawyers in total advising the committee. Um, it also has, uh, because it's a joint committee, it has a Lord's Clerk and a Commons Clerk, um, and it has some secretarial um, staff and some administrative staff um, to assist it. So it's, uh, it's not an enormously um, resourced um, committee, certainly compared to uh, some North American committees. And what does it mean to describe it as a joint committee of Parliament? A joint committee uh, is, a, is a committee which is comprised of members from both the House of Commons um, and from the House of Lords. Uh, so we have six members who are MPs and we have six members who are members of the House of Lords. How do committee members work together when they come from different parties? Um, interestingly, they work extremely well together. There's something about the language of, of human rights which I think helps them to overcome uh, what might otherwise be sort of partisan differences. Uh, quite often on the Joint Committee we find the members are discussing issues which are very contentious along party political lines, uh, but because they're discuss discussing whether the measure is consistent with human rights, uh, they often are able to set aside any partisan differences on that issue um, and actually work within a framework which seems to be more conducive to agreement between them. So they, they manage generally to work by consensus. You're an independent lawyer advising the committee. How does your relationship with committee members work? Well, I advise the uh, committee uh, strictly on the legality or, or the, the legal implications of, of a bill uh, that's brought forward by uh, the government. Um, and that will take the form of a written advice normally to the committee, which is circulated to all members. Um, and then that um, advice might be tested, sometimes quite rigorously tested by some members um, in uh, discussion in the committee. Um, and sometimes members um, 
if they are involved then subsequently in amending a bill or trying to amend a bill during its passage through Parliament. Um, we'll then come back to the lawyers again later um, to discuss the implications of earlier advice which has been given. When does the committee first become involved with a legislative proposal? Usually it's not until the bill is actually published. Um, so <coughs> when the bill um, is first introduced into either house, uh, it will land on the desk of uh, myself or one of the other lawyers um, advising the committee. Um, and that will usually be the first involvement that we've, that we've had with the bill. Occasionally, of course, there are draft bills published. Um, and where those draft bills are being scrutinised by other committees, um, we will then sometimes uh, get involved in advising those other committees um, on the human rights implications specifically of those draft bills. But normally it's when the bill is published. And are you or the committee ever involved before a bill or a draft bill is published at the stage when the government is still thinking about the proposals that it wants to bring forward? Yes, we are occasionally involved um, and increasingly we, we try to be involved at that stage. Um, in the last, since 2007, the last couple of years, uh, the government's published its draft legislative programme. Uh, indicating the bills it intends to introduce in that session. Uh, and we found that's been an extremely helpful exercise because it's enabled uh, the staff of the Joint Committee to meet with the departmental officials who are responsible for bringing those bills forward to try and identify at an early stage the sorts of human rights issues those bills might raise uh, and to try and flag up the sorts of issues the committee are likely to be interested in. Once a bill is published or a draft bill is published, what happens then so far as the committee is concerned? Once it's published, um, we try to um, react quite swiftly. Um, so my task, or one of the other lawyers' task, is to advise the committee within two weeks of the human rights issues which the bill raises. Uh, and within two weeks of its publication, the committee will meet to consider that advice and to decide whether there are any questions that it wishes to uh, write to the government to ask, which might be, for example, to ask for more evidence about why a particular measure is necessary, a particular interference with privacy, for example, is necessary. Um, and then that uh, advice, um, I'm sorry, that letter that, that, that the committee may send to the government is responded to within two weeks. And um, within uh, the target is, I think, ten weeks, the committee will try to report uh, before report stage of the bill in the First House. Whom do you deal with within the government department which is putting forward the bill? Yes, the committee um, itself will deal directly with the minister responsible, so the minister who signs the Section 19 Human Rights Act Statement of Compatibility. Um, so the correspondence, which all then subsequently gets published, is between the chair of the committee um, and the relevant minister. Um, at staff level, um, there are often meetings and uh, communication um, between uh, officials, so the bill team and the leader of the bill team in particular and the, the lawyers advising the bill team in the department um, will often correspond with the staff at the joint committee uh, in order to try and work out if there are issues which can be um, <coughs> dealt with before having to be dealt with in formal correspondence between the chair and the minister. And how do you, as a legal advisor, provide advice to the committee about a bill? Um, usually it's in written form. Um, and in the form of, of an advice note, um, often supplemented um, at a meeting of the committee um, as the committee discusses the bill and uh, considers the advice and questions arise in its own consideration of the, uh, of, of the written advice that it's been given. How does the committee raise human rights concerns with the government department? Is it always done formally? Um, it's usually done formally in, the form of a, in a form of a letter which can then be uh, published um, the committee has always set great store by transparency of its communication uh, with government departments. Um, so formality um, is, is usually the order of the day. Um, so it will normally be in the form of correspondence uh, between 
the, the chair and the, the minister, which then subsequently becomes published. And is the government department obliged to respond to a report by, or a, a, a query by the committee? Um, I think, strictly speaking, um, as a matter of parliamentary procedure, it probably um, isn't obliged as such to reply. Um, I think there's probably a pretty strong convention that, uh, that such letters from committee chairs um, are responded to. Um, there isn't either a, a strict requirement that the government respond as such to legislative scrutiny reports by the committee on bills, uh, but in practice, increasingly, um, the government, I think, finds it useful um, to put out a formal response, a formal report, in, a formal response to the committee's report. And will the committee have every bill referred to it? Yes, the, the committee looks at every single government bill uh, which is published. Um, so in this coming session there should be about 23 government bills and each of those will be considered by the committee's staff. And the committee apply criteria that the committee itself has decided, sorry, the, the staff um, apply criteria that the committee have decided um, are the criteria to apply to decide what is a significant human rights issue. Um, and... <coughs> And it will then decide, the, the committee will decide in the light of the staff's advice, um, which issues in which, on which bills it wishes to scrutinise. So it will end up scrutinising perhaps a third to a half um, of the bills, and of those bills it will scrutinise specific issues within them. What sort of things will the committee say in a report on, on a bill? In a report, the committee may say that an, an interference with freedom of expression, for example, um, is in the committee's view disproportionate um, or um, it might have reached the view that uh, it lacks a, a sufficiently precise legal basis for the interference. Um, <coughs> it may also um, congratulate the government on having introduced a human rights enhancing measure. Um, the, the committee's view has always been that uh, credit should be given where credit is due in terms of human rights enhancing measures. And the committee may also in some reports say that uh, an, op an opportunity hasn't been taken in the bill um, to implement a human rights obligation um, or to take a, a human rights enhancing step. What happens when the government's legal advice says that a bill is compatible with human rights but the committee takes a different view? Uh, that does arise um, uh, occasionally um, and there's no uh, opportunity really in Parliament for that to be resolved in any formal way um, the purpose of the committee's reports is to inform parliamentary debate and there will then be, when the committee has reported, um, debate in Parliament um, about the competing views on compatibility. And some bills do raise issues which, uh, on which there is um, sometimes uh, disagreement between uh, perfectly competent and reasonable um, lawyers, um, as we all know, as these issues end up being litigated to the highest courts. <coughs> but uh, often that, that um, disagreement um, will simply... Uh, be the subject of the parliamentary debate and then there, it may subsequently then be uh, something to which courts um, uh, refer uh, in, in later litigation about the compatibility of the bill. At what stage in the parliamentary process will the committee produce its report? The committee tries to report before the report stage of uh, the bill in the first house. Uh, and the reason it tries to do that is because that gives members of the committee an opportunity to put amendments to the bill to give effect to any recommendations the committee may make about the bill. So sometimes the committee will propose amendments to try and solve a human rights compatibility problem that it's identified, um, and it will suggest a specific amendment to the bill um, to render it compatible. Um, and if it reports before report stage in the first house, then there's an opportunity uh, for members to put those amendments um, and for there to be a debate um, before the bill leaves the first house. And what is the purpose of 
a, a report from the committee? What is it trying to achieve within the parliamentary process? First and foremost, within the parliamentary process, it, it is to try and inform parliamentarians about the human rights issues that uh, a bill raises. Uh, so it's mainly to uh, inform um, and to educate to some extent, to make available um, the evidence which is relevant to the issues which parliamentarians should be debating, um, and to provide um, some uh, guidance and advice about the relevant legal standards, relevant human rights legal standards, um, which are in play in relation to a particular measure. Does the committee take a, a legalistic approach? Does it give a sort of ruling on the bill, or is it trying to do something wider than that? No, it's, it's, it's trying to do something uh, much more reflecting its, its place in the political process. Um, it is always guided by legal advice, which is my um, job primarily. Um, but the committee um, has made clear that it takes its own view about compatibility, informed by legal advice. Um, so it will seek to uh, reach an independent view of its own with the benefit of legal advice on the compatibility question. Um, and, it, and it seeks, and I think has had some degree of success in this, um, to try to make human rights less of a legalistic um, concept um, so that parliamentarians don't get put off uh, by debating uh, the compatibility of a, of a particular bill um, and thinking it's just a preserve of the lawyers rather than the politicians. So does it try to frame the debate rather than dictate the answer to a particular question? Yes, it will. It will some, sometimes it may be necessary for the committee to give quite a definitive view on, on something which is, uh, in, the, in the committee's view, very clearly incompatible. Um, but broadly speaking, um, it's more often the case that a bill will raise a question about balancing one right against another, freedom of expression against the right to privacy, for example. Um, and there the committee will reach a view about where the balance between those ought to be struck. Um, and then its report will try to, as you say, frame the questions which the parliamentarians should debate when they're debating that on the floor of the House. The European Convention on Human Rights contains some implied obligations on the state to take positive action to protect human rights interests. Does the committee scrutinise a bill for failures to cover implied positive obligations contained in convention rights? Yes, it does do that. Um, a good example of that would be the uh, Coroners and Justice Bill um, in the last session of Parliament. Um, and in, in its report on that case, the Joint Committee um, was, very, uh, was very interested in the positive obligation in Article 2 of the European Convention um, to make sure that there is a, an adequate uh, procedure for investigating deaths. Um, and it measured the bill very much against the case law of the European Court of Human Rights, developing that implied positive obligation. Um, and so quite often um, its reports will say that this bill needs to be improved in one respect or another in order to give effect to an, to an implied positive obligation. And can the committee make other proposals for things to be included in the bill? Yes, it can. It's, uh, it, it's um, quite um, at, at liberty to, to suggest that um, omissions from bills should be, um, should be remedied. Um, and it will sometimes, um, for example, suggest that uh, a particular piece of legislation is an opportunity to give effect to an, an outstanding judgment. Um, so another example of that would be uh, in the last session in the Crime and Security Bill. The committee in its report suggested that the government should have taken the opportunity uh, to um, give effect to the MARPA judgment from the Strasbourg Court, um, changing the framework for retention of um, DNA. Um, and it also suggested an amendment in relation to the unimplemented judgment on the blanket ban on prisoner voting. So those are examples of uh, suggestions that uh, a bill, of, of what a bill could do but hasn't done. To what extent does the committee get sucked into the political debate uh, about a controversial bill? 
it unavoidably is sucked into political debate, um, and uh, the, all, all the members of the committee um, obviously are themselves very active parliamentarians and, um, generally speaking, um, quite partisan in their, in their political involvement, although we have some cross, a cross-bencher member um, from the House of Lords. Um, but it will, it will seek to make sure that its report um, isn't um, partisan or too political um, and is always grounded um, in the advice that it receives about uh, the relevant human rights norms. Um, but but what, it does seek, what it tries very hard to do um, is to structure the political debate that might take place about whether, for example, ID cards are um, a justifiable interference with the right to privacy or whether there are sufficient safeguards on the um, identity database, national identity database. Those are very political issues which divide politicians um, quite, uh, along quite extreme lines often, um, but it will try to in- inform that debate uh, by, by providing a framework for it in human rights law. How significant is the Joint Committee in the parliamentary process? That's a question we don't yet know the answer to, I'm afraid. <laughs> we, um, members, I'm sure, would like to think it's, uh, it's extremely significant. Um, what we really need to be able to answer that question is some quite systematic research, I think, on the effect that the committee's reports have had on parliamentarians and on parliamentary debate. Um, and we haven't had the resources ourselves to conduct that research. Um, impressionistically, I think it's possible to say that it's become um, increasingly influential uh, as measured by references to reports of the committee and parliamentary debates um, and the uh, frequency with which the government might respond positively to a, a committee recommendation in a scrutiny report. To what extent do the committee's reports on the bill get used by parliamentarians in the course of debate on, on a bill? To an increasing extent, but um, f- from my point of view, still a rather disappointing uh, extent. Um, to begin with, it was mainly members of the committee itself who referred to parliamentary to the Joint Committee on Human Rights reports in parliamentary debates. Um, we have, I think, made some progress in the last uh, year or two, um, so that now other members of both houses who aren't members of the committee do increasingly refer to reports. And the real measure for me um, of making some progress on this score um, is that we now have parliamentarians who aren't lawyers quite confidently referring to JCHR reports. Does the committee have more influence, do you think, if it can express views at an earlier stage in the legislative process? Yes, I think it's undoubtedly been our experience that the earlier it's possible for the committee to say to a department, this bill is likely to raise this particular human rights issue, uh, and these are the sorts of questions um, that the committee is likely to ask, um, the more likely it is that that bill in its final form uh, won't raise human rights compatibility issues. And normally it's a case of pointing out to the department the sort of material or evidence that it, it has already generated in the policy formation process that it needs to provide to the committee in a framework which explains why that's relevant to the government's view that the particular interference is necessary or proportionate. Can you give an example where the committee's work has made a significant difference to the form of a bill? Yes, I think uh, a good recent example would be the Child Poverty Bill, um, which was introduced in the last session of Parliament. And this is an example of a bill where the staff of the JCHR met with the bill team at a very early stage before the bill's introduction um, and discussed with the bill team the human rights framework, which was relevant to that particular bill. Uh, And it included, um, for example, um, 
rights which are not contained in the European Convention on Human Rights, um, rights such as the right of children to be consulted in relation to decisions and plans which, uh, which affect them, uh, and also the child's right to an adequate standard of, of living. Um, and conversations between the committee's staff and the bill team staff on that particular bill I think very much uh, influenced the shape in which the, uh, the final form of the bill uh, was passed by Parliament. And what factors do you feel contribute to success for the committee in influencing the form of a bill? It's usually a combination of um, different um, pressures. Um, sometimes it's a sheer force of um, persuasive or justificatory argument. Um, more commonly it's uh, some confluence of political pressure, um, perhaps some media pressure, um, and there being pressure from civil society and, and NGOs around a particular issue, on a particular issue. Um, and the committee, um, its reports are very much issued into that sort of context. So it's one actor, really, in a, in a, in a much wider context. Murray, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much.